1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: My name is Jennifer Marshall. I'm the vice president for the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity here at the Heritage Foundation. I want to welcome all of you who are watching online and ask all of you here in the audience if you wouldn't mind checking once that your cell phone is off or at least muted, that'll help us out. Um, I have the pleasure of introducing our uh, first speaker today, and I want to set the stage by recalling that a year ago, on September 20th, Hurricane Maria slammed the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. The storm, as you'll recall, left catastrophic destruction in its wake. Many lives were lost. Homes and infrastructure were devastated. Hurricane Maria also destroyed many school facilities across the territory. Six months after the storm, hundreds of schools remained without power. By that time, an estimated 22,300 school-aged children had left the island. 22,000 school-aged children had left the island. It's about one in three students. The storm exacerbated the problems of a school system already in crisis. Puerto Rican fourth and eighth graders, for example, are roughly five grade levels behind their U.S. mainland peers in mathematics. Well, in the wake of the storm, Puerto Rico Secretary of Education Julia Kelleher, along with Governor Ricardo Rossello, pledged support for two new education reforms. The first major reform was the introduction of independently operated charter schools. The second reform is a scholarship program scheduled to roll out in 2019, in that academic year. One year from now, the Puerto Rico uh, Department of Education will begin implementation of a pilot scholarship program that will allow parents to pay tuition at the private school that best meets their children's needs. Our program today will discuss these two reforms and the great promise they hold for Puerto Ricans as they rebuild after the hurricane. Our first speaker is going to kick off our session with brief remarks on what a difference educational choice can make in a community from his extensive experience. He'll be followed by a panel discussing more of the details about these policies. So let me introduce our first speaker today. Frank Brogan is Assistant Secretary for Elementary and Secondary Education. He most recently served as Chancellor of Pennsylvania's public universities, but he spent much of his career in the state of Florida where he began as a fifth-grade teacher in Martin County, Florida. We were just talking about how important it is to get out and know exactly what you're dealing with in school. schools across the country, so he knows of what he speaks here on the policy level uh, from being a practitioner. He later uh, served as dean of students, assistant principal, principal, and superintendent, before he was elected Florida's commissioner of education in 1994. Brogan continued his work in education uh, when he was elected to serve as lieutenant governor of the state of Florida in 1998 and 2002. After five years in that role, he was named president of Florida Atlantic University, uh, a position that he held until 2009 when he was selected to serve as chancellor of Florida's public universities. Please join me in welcoming Assistant Secretary Brogan.
3: Well, first of all, uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you for the kind introduction. As I regularly sit in seats like that and listen to that introduction, which includes the the, the bio that's necessary, uh, I often reflect on the fact that that uh, is not as impressive as it might sound, because to many people, it looks more like uh, the obvious statement, this is a man who cannot hold a job. Um, <laughs> I've been, I've been more than blessed in my career, which, by the way, uh, as of this summer, spans 40 years, um, officially of public service. Um, almost exclusively in that 40 years, that service has been, um, in in the area of state and local government. Um, this is my first foray into the world of the federal government, and thus will make up an interesting, uh, chapter in my best-selling novel someday, Things I've Learned. Um, We'll talk more about that in a little while. But um, first of all, I want to thank the Heritage Foundation. And a quick commercial message, not that they need uh, me to provide it, but um, I have been a longtime fan of the Heritage Foundation. It has been as consistent uh, as the day is long. Uh, It has been resilient in its ability to move through Seemingly countless administrations, different philosophies, different approaches to the issues that we face in our country and in our world. And yet, what has been constant uh, is the Heritage Foundation. Uh, People come and people go in the Heritage Foundation. That's the hallmark of any great organization. And yet, they remain constant and consistent. Uh, They have become, in many ways, almost a north star of the work that gets done in uh, veritable think tanks all over the country and all over the world, for that matter, uh, their reputation is, as those of us in this room uh, most know, um, incredible. Uh, for credibility's sake, for integrity's sake, um, the kinds of things that you would want uh, being constant as a part of any organization that does work uh, such as is done by the Heritage Foundation. I'm also the direct recipient of some of the great work that is done by the Heritage Foundation because we in the Department of Education are pleased and proud to have a fair number of people who are uh, alum of the Heritage Foundation. I happen to be, as the new, relatively new, Assistant Secretary for Elementary and Secondary Education, the recipient of such a person. She started actually only a matter of a couple of weeks or so before I did, and uh, it was a surprise to me, not that she was there, but the fact that we had a relationship from the time I was uh, running the Pennsylvania state system of higher education. She happened to be a student in that system and not just a student. She also was the uh, one of the three student leaders that sat on the state's board of governors for um, the higher education system in Pennsylvania. And I got to know her in that regard. Technically speaking, one of my bosses, because that group hires the chancellor of the state university system. Well, <laughs> now she works for me. <laughs> so all that's changed. But I, I was delighted when she not only uh, came to D.C. to work for Heritage, um, and then as, as that was coming to a, to a conclusion, uh, successfully, uh, decided she wanted to stay in Washington, D.C. And I almost uh, casually said, well, you ought to put your um, resume in here with the Department of Education. They're always looking for great people to fill positions. And that was pretty much the end of it. Until uh, I was uh, calling the previous leader of the Office of Secondary and Elementary Education, who was Jason Botel, who did a wonderful job as the acting assistant secretary at that time. And I called him about something. It had nothing to do with anything in particular. But uh, as we were about to hang up, Jason said to me, oh, by the way, Frank, one more thing. And I said, what is it? He said, thanks for Shana. And I said, I don't get it. What do you mean, thanks for Shana? He said, Shana Hilsey. And I said, yeah, I know Shana Hilsey. He said, you didn't know that we just hired her as the new confidential assistant for the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education. And I said, no, I didn't. And about two weeks later, um, I moved into that office, and there was Shana Hilsey. And we now get to work together uh, in that regard. And she does an incredible job, not surprisingly but she also uh, did her time uh, and still talks so highly of it here at the Heritage Foundation. So she's one person who has had the heritage experience that now carries that experience on as we work together, both of us, for the the good of the Department of Education. We also have uh, Jean Morrow. Some of you might uh, remember. Jean and I worked together uh, and still do, but work together more closely when I was in one of my acting capacities. Interesting that in the federal level, when you move into the, a job or a department or an agency as the nominee, because this job requires Senate confirmation, um, that during the time period uh, from which you've been nominated to the time you are, ultimately, if you are successful, uh, confirmed by the United States Senate, uh, you are not permitted uh, to serve in any capacity relative to the job to which you've been nominated. Senate figured out a long time ago that um, you could game the system. You could put somebody in as an acting assistant secretary and just never quite get around to putting them up as the full secretary and thus avoid Senate confirmation uh, because uh, actings don't have to go through Senate confirmation. So by virtue of the fact, they changed the law. So I came in exactly a year ago um, out of Pennsylvania and started as the acting assistant secretary in the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development, which is a long way of saying essentially budget and policy working together. And then about a month later, um, uh, the secretary added to that um, portfolio a new role, which was not or, and uh, the assist, uh, the acting assistant secretary in the office of post-secondary education, because I had just come out of 15 years in higher education. So uh, during that time, it was a real advantage. It gave me the opportunity to learn about the workings of the Department of Education, put faces with names. Heck, I'm still working on the acronym thing uh, at the federal level. Believe me, the feds have cornered the market on the whole issue of acronyms. I am sure that somewhere in this city, there is a big building uh, with the letters DOAC, uh, which is an acronym in itself standing for the Department of Acronym Creation, um, because you can't do this without some ringmaster. But it, it's been a wonderful year, and that... Um, original evolution into the department really gave me a chance to become grounded up until which time this June, uh, past June, I was finally confirmed by the United States Senate and assumed the role of uh, full secretary, uh, assistant secretary of the Office of Elementary and Secondary. Uh, but it's like drinking from a fire hose um, because now, because I've been sequestered from that office, I now go into it and have to um, learn all of the things that I couldn't learn on the job as I did in the other two offices. But um, uh, it's, it's a continued professional adventure, and I have enjoyed it very, very much. We also have, I mentioned Jean Morrow. Uh, She and I work together in the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development. Uh, Garen McCam is in our Office of Legislative Affairs and does an incredible job. He is a product of the Heritage Foundation. And Jessica Newman, also a wonderful person who works with us in the department, came through the Heritage Foundation. So not only does the Heritage Foundation do great work internally and push that information out but also some marvelous people uh, are here and have passed through the Heritage Foundation as they've then gone on to other things, which continues to make this the great organization that it is. As Bill, uh, in the introduction, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit um, about um, Puerto Rico. Uh, I had never been to Puerto Rico in my life until I went there some months ago on my first foray to Puerto Rico to be on the ground, not only to help provide much needed technical assistance with a group of my colleagues from the Department of Education, but also uh, most important to me was being on the ground to better understand uh, physically, emotionally, and personally uh, how their schools were operating uh, post-hurricanes interesting about the hurricane. Um, Some people believe that all things education really didn't come to life until after the hurricanes by way of reform and change. And that's technically not true. Much of the change that was being considered started before the hurricanes hit. When I say hurricanes, it's actually plural. Uh, They got hit hard with a massive hurricane went through about two and a half weeks of daily torrential downpours, massive rainfall, remembering on the heels of the first hurricane, which opened the island up physically and then dumped two weeks and more of torrential rain on those now open buildings. And you can consider the massive intrusion of water into a now... Uh, system of infrastructure that was badly brutalized from the first hit, followed immediately by a second storm, which brought, again, not only its own devastation, but devastation that was created by the first hurricane, the massive rains, and then the second storm. All of that having passed, uh, those that were there and those that have been there since can only realize, because they've seen it, they've lived it, or people like me have gone to see it for themselves, the true devastation that continues in many ways uh, to the island of Puerto Rico. I don't want to leave out the Virgin Islands at all, or minimize or marginalize, because they're right down the road, and they got hit equally from from the ferocity of all that horrible weather, Uh, but uh, indeed... Uh, Puerto Rico continues to be almost um, a poster of the de- of devastation resulting from natural disaster and then the aftermath as to how uh, you reorganize and bring uh, a locale back to life. But very importantly, again, and not to overemphasize, but I think it is important that some people do believe that the educational reforms and changes that are now playing out in Puerto Rico were really only as an effect or, or, or a relationship to those storms, and that isn't true. Puerto Rico has been seeing population decline for some time and therefore already had put on the table plans for the consolidation and even the closure of a number of schools relative to uh, that decline in enrollment based on decline in population. The storms clearly exacerbated that to a tremendous degree and uh, increased the urgency to look at the reorganization of the island schools and how they would move forward with now uh, less and less students and families based on the flight of many from the island to different places around the world, obviously the United States, the mainland, being one of those locales. And so by virtue of that fact, have seen now uh, a, a decrease in enrollment truly put in overdrive you heard some of the numbers in the introduction um, and and by way of numbers um, you really are talking now about a substantially decreased enrollment population 17 over 18. Uh, closing in on almost 50,000 students less. Not quite there, but they're getting close to 50,000 students just from 17-year to 18-year by their own count. So to say that those storms accelerated uh, some of the uh, difficulties they were already dealing with with declining enrollment is an understatement But those phenomena had already begun prior to the storms for a wide variety of reasons. People, of course, as we know, around the world are simply becoming more mobile. But at the same time, economic circumstances and the like have been having an impact on the overall population of Puerto Rico for a bit of time. So I wanted to provide you that context. I thought it important because, again, probably not in this room. But when when I talk about Puerto Rico, I find people almost mark time based on everything that's occurred after the hurricane. And just for context's sake, the knowledge that that's not necessarily true. It is certainly, as I mentioned, exacerbated the issue uh, and the issues. But nevertheless, they're now in what I consider to be a true renaissance period. How do we want to look as as an organized enterprise in Puerto Rico going forward from those storms. What do we want to be uh, in, in this next century? How do we want to behave? What changes should we make? What changes now can we make as a result of that devastation that sometimes occurs after a natural disaster is, the sheer ability not only and urgency to look at where you are and what you've got to do, but also look at what you might do because things have changed so dramatically, right? I have never been one to use that old hackneyed phrase about never um, avoid using a, a great crisis as an opportunity to do things differently. To me, that marginalizes the crisis, and in this case, trying to marginalize intentionally or unintentionally the devastation that that occurred uh, in Puerto Rico and, and in the Virgin Islands would be a tragedy and a travesty. But nevertheless, uh, things that they were already beginning to do on one pallet suddenly are staring at a much larger pallet uh, upon which to paint because the need is there and therefore the changes uh, to meet those needs and to evolve forward are there at the same time. A little bit of historical context in terms of uh, the two issues that I'm going to talk about, which are charter schools and um, uh, vouchers. Uh, First of all, just those two phrases. Uh, I have been in the business of, of education for 40 years, as I mentioned, Uh, I was commissioner of education in Florida when we passed the first charter school bill for Florida, and it was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first in the country at that time. I say that for some context. Uh, Charter schools haven't been around very long. Now, for the younger crowd in the audience, uh, when I said 1996, that was a long time ago. I I get it. I I understand it. But for those of us who who, uh, have a little less... uh, rubber on the tread. Uh, I I can assure you in the world of education, it was yesterday when charter schools began to appear on the scene because charter school laws had begun to be taken up. Interesting footnote here. They were only made possible for two reasons. Uh, People were willing to look at that time at different approaches to how we educate our children. It was not meant, as some suggest, to be an indictment of traditional public schools. They were given the opportunity to work back in the mid-90s because people started to believe that it would be important to create almost laboratories of change in public education. We were starting to recognize at that point that some of our conditions whether it was being average or in too many cases below average and how children were faring in their classrooms and most importantly in terms of their skill set abilities was being called into question in this regard. If we keep doing it the same way we've been doing it, are we going to be assured of something better You can't just ask people who are already working as hard as they can to work harder and assume that that will generate higher learning gains for this incredibly diverse population of boys and girls with whom we work every day. So maybe we better start to take a serious look at how we can change going forward. And the charter school movement really began with that in mind. It was not, as some people suggest, based on an indictment of traditional public education, because much in the charter school movement came from people inside of traditional public education. The idea that we can really push the envelope of change by looking at what change can provide, how that change can be organized, and identify through practice not just through journal entry or magazine article, new opportunities for the traditionalist system to consider as to how we might do a better job of reaching 21st century young people in a world that was changing faster than we could keep up in an education system that seemed to be in many ways stepping aside for the challenges that students faced rather than standing up to those challenges and looking for ways to help our boys and girls overcome them. In those days, I would literally, from time to time, hear people, sometimes my own colleagues, try to explain away lack of success among our children based on the challenges that they faced, based on the color of their skin, based on whether or not they paid full price redu- reduced price or no price for the lunch they ate every day when they came to school it was the litany of rationale posted up against failure in some cases all coming from people of good intent with big hearts never recognizing that what they were doing is say well you just have to understand why these children aren't learning to read and write and count they come from poverty they come from non-traditional families, oftentimes without fathers. They are a free and reduced lunch. All of the kinds of things that public education has racked up over the years with the best of intent to try to help children overcome had become issues as to explain away why our boys and girls weren't learning the things we knew in our hearts they were capable of learning, and yet weren't. And it got to the point in the mid-90s when we were looking at rates of failure that were simply unacceptable and didn't stand up to the traditional explanations as to challenges that boys and girls carried with them or the diversity that they brought along for the ride as rationale as to why these things were occurring. There started to come a demand that we could do better and that in order to do that, we started. We needed to start not only to have conversations and even debates about how we might do it differently, but along came the concept of charter schools. The idea that maybe we could actually help to create a platform upon which laboratories and education reform could be created. And that was the predicate in those days to do it. It did not come without a price. I told you I was commissioner and helped lead the charge to help create Florida's per- first public um, charter school law. Uh, truth is, when that happened, I was six feet four inches tall. This is all that's left after uh, the battle that went into getting that charter school bill passed. Why? You know the rest. Uh, the people who stood up to the charter school bill and said this is wrong-headed thinking We just need a little more money and a little more time and we can keep doing what we're doing and we'll get it right. Who had been saying that for 50 years and still were staring at unacceptable rates of success and failure on behalf of our boys and girls was not going to go quietly into that good night without a fight. So we heard all of the conventional arguments against it at the time. The fact that you're going to be robbing money from the schools that remain traditional to set up these laboratories. The fact that you'll expect less of the boys and girls and the faculty and the staff because you're going to be expecting less by way of rules and regulations that will, in our opinion, give flower to the potential of change was turned on its head and suggested that when you get rid of those rules and regulations for charter schools, they will misuse and abuse the situation and do even less for their boys and girls, and that's unacceptable. I heard every possible horror story about why the concept of charter schools was a terrible idea, and yet the law passed. And ultimately in Florida, beginning in the late uh, 1990s, We started to see charter schools spring up and grow, and they continue to do so today. We saw in other states their own version of charter school laws passed, promulgated, and instituted, and now start to see charter schools spring up all over the country. Has the deafening roar of the opponents ended? No, quite the contrary. It has torqued up higher I said to my friends this morning as we were talking about this, I'm still amazed that when a charter school fails and things are written about it and said about it, that there are some out there who revel today and celebrate the failure as evidence that this was a bad idea to begin with, and this is only one more example of what we told you back in the 1990s is this is wrongheaded thinking and it's going to be bad for boys and girls. What they fail to recognize is that for one that closes, many more open every single year. And many more thousands of students are now attending charter schools. And the fact that when a charter school closes, it closes because it should. Because things are either not happening well for the boys and girls in it, or because it was a business model that went bankrupt. Either way, it is not a predicate for success, and therefore, closure is sometimes the only way to move forward. Think of traditional public schools. They don't close. It doesn't matter if two-thirds of the children in them can't read or write or calculate mathematically on grade level, closure is not an option. Schools do close sometimes, Puerto Rico is an example, because of declining enrollment. There are variables that constitute the closure of a school. But in the traditional world of public education, lack of success just isn't one of them it is possible because you are funded by the government to continue failure year after year after year and continue to point at the flawed raw material that sits in front of you every day as the reason for doing that. All unacceptable. That's wrongheaded thinking. And so by virtue of that fact, whether it's the uh, uh, renaissance that we're finding in the world of choice, And, folks, it's not just charter schools, and it's not just vouchers. Charter schools have also foisted upon traditional public education the need and ultimately, thank goodness in many places, the sheer desire to find ways to create specialized educational opportunities to give parents and children other choices beyond charter schools and beyond traditional voucher programs. That are springing up all over the country at the same time. Might find its way into the world of magnet schools, international baccalaureate degree programs. It's different in states, it's different in communities. But people in public education have started to recognize the power of people's ability to make a choice. I oftentimes muse over the fact that the people who oppose school choice most are the people who fight the hardest for choice in other social variables. Isn't it interesting? Demanding people's rights to choose until it comes to one of the most important things that a mother and father face every single day, and that's the education of their offspring. Poor parents, middle-income parents, wealthy parents, African-American parents, Hispanic parents, Caucasian parents, people who live in traditional family homes, as we've known them, and people who live in very non-traditional homes, as we're finding more and more of each and every day. The one thing they all share in common is the education of their children. And by virtue of that fact, the way we've written our state laws that obligate you to go to school, or for parents to send your children to school, that are all still on the books, until you're 16 to 18, depending on the state in which you reside. And then the organized exercise to say, now that you have to meet that obligation, you step into the local arena of government, which will tell you which school that is going to occur in, to the address, because of where you live. And we all know the old adage about education by Zipka. Now, that's still was not an obstacle to a good many people who could afford to make other decisions for their boys and girls, but it still left so many boys and girls in very difficult and in some cases sad circumstances because the school to which they were obligated, and obligated based on economics, where they lived or were able to live, which is uh, could be a school where, again, two-thirds of the children in it can't read, write, or count. It could be a school that, by most accounts, is just physically unsafe. And yet, that is the school government has assigned you, and that, unless you can afford something different, is the school that you will attend. And by virtue of the fact that the opponents of the choice system seem hard to that reality, still continues to confuse me today. The most vulnerable children in our systems of education are the children who are denied most of the choices, or in some cases, have none at all. When in fact, we are then almost sentencing them to something versus providing them access to a world-class educational experience. And vouchers are no different. I marvel at the fact that the entire debate about school vouchers, which used to be varied in terms of the list of things that would destroy the world if we did school vouchers, has essentially now boiled down to one. Then I'll tell you why I think it did. It's the one you hear in every conversation against vouchers. It's the one you read in everything that's written about why we shouldn't have vouchers. And it goes like this. Well, you got to understand, if you give people vouchers, they may use them. And if they use them, that might mean Johnny is leaving our school and going to another school. And with him goes the money that we get in our school. That he brings because we do per pupil funding. And losing that money means we are going to be diminished in our capacity to offer a world class educational experience. Well, that might be interesting if indeed they were offering a world class educational experience. Don't know how you explain that two thirds of the children in your charge can't read, write, or count on grade level and still call it a world class educational experience, but whatever gets you through the night. But to that end, that's what it's boiled down to. And I'll tell you why. Because the purveyors of that approach know that that cross cuts economics and social fabric. See, you can get away with having children in poor sections of town not avail themselves of vouchers by just saying vouchers aren't good, won't be good for your children, it seems. But how do you explain... That vouchers are bad to people who are in schools in the suburbs, who you would think would be the first people to say, Sure, we should have choice. We're paying for ours, but everybody ought to have the same choice we're lucky to have because we can pay for it. What's turned off a big segment of that population of folks? Ah, it's this thought I have my child in a middle- or upper-middle-class neighborhood school. And what they've told me is, if we give everybody a voucher and Johnny's family uses it, they will be taking away from my child's public school the money we got when Johnny went here. And if enough of that happens, it is going to diminish my child school's ability to do all the great th- things that they do for my child. It cross-cuts that anti-message. That's why it's disintegrated into that approach, because it paints with the broadest brush of all the fact that vouchers are bad because it will cost schools money and it will cost your child's school money. Quick story back to Puerto Rico. When I was uh, lieutenant governor and we were running for re-election, in the first term, uh, we put in place some significant education reforms in our state. To that end, uh, one of them happened to be the grading of schools, A through F. And we used to say when people said, that's a terrible idea, why do you do it? answer is simple, because everybody knows what an A is and everybody knows what an F is. We don't muck it up with a lot of jargon, right? By virtue of that fact I was attending during the reelect um the statewide PTA meeting, and in Florida that's a big deal. I'm talking two thousand people gathered in Orlando in a big resort for the, the the statewide PTA meeting. When I walked in, I noted that every person there was wearing a pin, big one. Had the word vouchers in it, big circle around it with a slash through it. I thought, well this could be fun, because I was the keynote luncheon speaker. So as I sat there, I thought, what am I going to say? How am I going to deal with this elephant in the living room? So I went to the podium, unrehearsed on this one, and went out on a limb. I said, I'm going to ask for a little uh, participation from the audience on this. And I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I want to see something here. You represent every place in the state. You represent every socioeconomic level. You represent all kinds of families and structures and systems. So I've got to ask you a question raise your hand if you'll indulge me. If your child goes to an A-rated school, raise your hand. Huge number of hands went up in the audience. So I kept flying. I said, if your child goes to a B-rated school, raise your hand. Larger number went up. C, smaller number, but still very, very substantial. And I said, okay, here it comes. How many people's children go to an F-rated school? You could have counted them on two hands. I said, folks, thank you for indulging me that, but whether you know it or not, you've just proved something I've always believed. Not represented in this audience in any great number are people whose children are in schools who could, and their parents, benefit most from school choice, including vouchers. Folks, you like your schools. You're happy with your schools. You just told me that. Your school's an A school, a B school. C school working hard to be a B school. Things are happening, and that's great. But you're wearing a pin that, in effect, is communicating that you want to deny access to the same kind of great educational experience to other people's children who aren't in this room in any great number. Does that make sense? Is it right? Is it what we ought to be about as a people? And that's what school choice is. Very important to Puerto Rico. And I go back to the context. They were in the business of trying to do these things before those storms hit, contrary to some of the mythology. They put in place a a law that was passed in March of 2018. And it codified education reforms uh, that also included charter schools and school vouchers. The lawsuit was quick. That came after it, and it was filed, not surprisingly, by the Teachers' Federation of uh, Puerto Rico, the Teachers' Union. And ultimately, uh, a superior judge did rule that vouchers were unconstitutional and charter schools could only be operated by municipalities and universities in Puerto Rico. Well, went on to the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico, which overturned that ruling and put it back into the original law that was written. And by virtue of that fact, they began again. But my point here before I go on is that it didn't happen without a brawl because it could mean change. And there are just some individuals and organizations that do not want change of any kind. They will tolerate change that is foisted upon them by members of the legislature or by groups and organizations within education that are fostering change. But if they had it their way, they wouldn't change a thing. We'd be operating today and would be 100 years from now the way we've always operated, by the way, which for many children is just fine because of their circumstances. So that's a bit of the chronology. Now, where are they with all of this? Well, it's brand new. Uh, you've got the first year of charter schools, and to date, there is but one uh, that is a charter school that serves kindergarten through first graders. There'll be a lot to learn from that one, even in its early stage, right? But at the same time, there are many in the queue. That's not a bad thing. It is good to be able to think hard and plan well before you put a charter school application on a table anywhere. Too many charter schools don't fail because good things aren't happening with the boys and girls in that school. Oftentimes they fail because the business model didn't work. They went belly up. Oftentimes because charter schools are started by people understandably with big hearts and good intent who don't know a great deal about the operation side of what it takes to run a school and organize a school and pay for a school. So by virtue of that fact, uh, the time that is evolving here hopefully will work to the advantage of those who will be next up in line to consider uh, charter schools in Puerto Rico. School vouchers begin in 1920, 19, 2019, 2020. And by virtue of that fact, uh, there are no specific organized voucher programs yet put in place, but there are people who are currently enjoying the ability to use vouchers because Puerto Rico actually included some really interesting language in their voucher component of the legislation. It's not just traditional vouchers, but they also wanted to target for vouchers children who were victims of bullying or sexual assault. They wanted to provide some unique niche opportunities for students who may, and their parents, be most desirous of a change for the right reasons. And by virtue of that fact, there is some of that going on right now. But the major evolution to this thing will not start and take place until next year. ESSA, as uh, you've probably heard the phrase, which is the Every Student Succeeds Act, which was passed uh, just a couple of years ago by Congress, also covers um, school choice. ESSA, if I could hit to the heart of it, comes in two components. One, Congress and the United States believed that it was time to start pushing back to the local more local control, whether that's the state or the local communities in education, that we were were becoming far too Washington, D.C. centric on the whole issue of education, knowing that public education didn't start in Washington, D.C. so long ago. It started in local communities all over the country, their way, done their way. And over the years, we've pulled harder and harder at the national level And we're getting to a point, and I was out there, where people were told pretty much what to do and how to do it from someone somewhere else. And by virtue of that fact, ESSO was created. And by the way, here's a word you don't hear often in Washington, D.C. these days. In a very, very bipartisan fashion, they're proud of that fact. To begin to return more local control to states and communities on how their schools operate. Ah, but part two... That doesn't mean that you jettison any expectation in the world of accountability and reporting and monitoring. We still, as a people, deserve the right, I think, the obligation to know how our young people are faring in those communities, in those states, across the country. Because if you're going to use the new flexibility that's provided to you, as ESSA provides to everyone, what you do with it And the impact as to what that effect will be on young people is really where the rubber meets the road. And so, yes, there is now a greater flexibility to create, to organize, and to change. But just because that's been provided doesn't mean people are going to pick that gauntlet up. And that's what's going to be the real interesting part to watch when it comes to ESSA. Do people have what it takes? That's the courage to be able to step up to the plate and create change for boys and girls throughout America's schools. And that is playing out even today. Last couple of thoughts. Um, we will be monitoring and reviewing in the department, because that's part of the congressional charge, how people are doing with their ESA plans upon implementation. All 52 plans are now approved and are now being implemented. The monitoring and review, we call it the scorecard that was laid out in the legislation that created ESSA, is now being put into place, and people will begin to populate those scorecards their way in their states. But we will have now uh, available to us how each state is faring up against the metrics and the standards that were proposed in the ESSA law when it was created. It'll be formatted as they want to format it, but it'll give us a very good idea, give the state a good idea, give the nation a good idea of how each state has stepped up to the plate of change, flexibility, and possibility while expecting more by way of student success. And that's the case in Puerto Rico. So as Puerto Rico continues to dig out, The interesting thing about living in the tropics, and I lived in Florida for 35 years, is after hurricanes, and I've been through a lot of them, the thing that comes back first in a tropical environment, what do you think it is? Tropic and subtropical. What comes back first after a devastating storm? Mold. In part, that is correct. But basically, the larger answer is foliage, anything that grows. So when you go to Puerto Rico today, It remains an incredibly beautiful, lush, tropical environment. But the hardened infrastructure, the buildings, the bridges, the roadways, still a year after the devastating storm, show the clear and continued signs of that devastation. But I have to leave you with this. Uh, I and a lot of people smarter than I am uh, believe in what Puerto Rico is doing. It wasn't created by the storm. The genesis of these changes came before the storm. But both before and since, those who have the courage, whether it is the Secretary of Education, uh, Julia Kelleher, who is an amazing and resilient individual, passionate about boys and girls and passionate about evolution and change in their educational experience. And I give a great deal of credit to the governor in Puerto Rico. It does take courage for a governor to sign on to these kinds of changes in education and know that you're going to pay a political price for it because not everyone will embrace them. But Governor Rosello has done just that, and he is out at the forefront of making certain that these changes are implemented, along with the secretary and along with a lot of courageous folks in the Puerto Rico and in the government and the education system of Puerto Rico. So I do leave you with that optimistic view of this. I and people like me believe this is going to matter. It's not only going to matter for Puerto Rico, it will in its own way be a laboratory of observation for people all over the country who are going to look to Puerto Rico as a beacon of example of what change can bring especially when you're in a position to be able to put down at least temporarily the forces who would keep it exactly the way it has always been. Certainly a country in need, but a country that truly is working diligently in education, not to just put back what always used to be, but build for the future and the changes that are going to be a part of Puerto Rico's educational landscape. And we will, in the department, not only continue to work side by side with them, we, like everyone, will be watching them, learning from them as they go. So I want to thank, again, the Heritage Foundation for the opportunity to share some of these thoughts with you. And again, if you do have occasion to find yourself in Puerto Rico, you will still continue to see one of the most beautiful places on earth. But still today, a year later, you'll still notice the scars that were left by that devastation. And yet, as I did, you'll also see in the eyes, you'll feel in your heart, the unbelievable and unbridled enthusiasm of the Puerto Rican people who managed not only to navigate this devastation, but came through it in a way that is pointed directly at the future of Puerto Rico at the same time, most importantly, with young people at its core. Thanks for the chance to be with you today. I appreciate it very much. I look forward to the panel.
4: Thank you, Secretary Brogan. Good afternoon, and thank you for coming. I'm Jude Schwalbach, and I am the Education Policy Research Assistant here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Puerto Rico is in a unique situation as it recovers from the tragic effects of Hurricane Maria and at the same time focuses on rebuilding its education system. Today we're excited to hear from our four panelists who are experts in their respective fields. Each panelist will provide a short, uh, they'll provide a a short message about their experiences or thoughts uh, on the new reforms. Uh, there will be a Q&A at the end, so please hold your questions till then. Andrew Ujifuza is our first panelist. He's an assistant editor at the Education Week where he covers education policy at the state and federal level. Andrew has spent the past year covering education policy in Puerto Rico. Vanessa Gonzalez is a native born Puerto Rican who moved to Puerto Rico to support the transformation of Puerto Rico's education system as the advisor to the Education Secretary of Puerto Rico. In this role, she leads strategic initiatives across academics, communications, and partnerships. Darrell Allison is the National Director of State Teams and Political Strategy at the American Federation for Children. He works to expand educational opportunity and improve K-12 education. Robert Enlow is the CEO and President of EdChoice, the legacy foundation of Milton and Rose Friedman. He has written extensively on school choice and works in states across the nation to empower parents through educational choice. So, Andrew, if you could get us started.
5: Sure. Uh Thanks for having me, and and thanks to everyone for being here. Uh, It's nice to see Puerto Rico schools getting attention in D.C. So often they have not. I want to start with a dry disclaimer that my bosses, uh, I think, will appreciate. Uh, I do not have any opinions one way or the other about school choice in Puerto Rico. I'm not paid to have them. I'm mainly here to provide my uh, perspective on reporting uh, from the island, including three trips uh, over the past year, uh, including one, a couple of weeks after Hurricane Maria. Um, I want to start just with a few details at the, uh, micro, uh, macro level, excuse me, and then talk briefly about, uh, the first charter school in Puerto Rico, which Mr. Brogan alluded to. Uh, Puerto Rico's school system, um, I should start by saying is, Very large, and I think it's something that most people, even in education policy, don't know about. One time, it was the third largest school system in the United States in terms of American students being educated. Even today, after the decline in enrollment after Maria, if you took the public school enrollment in Atlanta, Boston, and Seattle and combined them, that enrollment level would still be far below the number of students in Puerto Rican public schools stands at a little more than 300,000. Um, getting basic data uh, about Puerto Rican students from the federal government has historically been very difficult, including basic things like graduation rates. If the same were true for any particular state, uh, there would be howls of outrage both inside and outside uh, the beltway. Uh, this is alluded to in Heritage's brief on Puerto Rico schools. Uh, the stat that stood out for me and that Secretary Kelleher shared with us recently is that on the most recent round of the National Assessment for Educational Progress, uh, the so-called gold standard for education testing in the United States, not one Puerto Rican student in the eighth grade, and perhaps the fourth grade too, Vanessa might correct me, uh, Not one student scored proficient in math. Not one. I think that speaks volumes about the challenges in Puerto Rico school system academically, all the way up to things like long-term finances, which have also been uh, problematic. Over the past 18 months or so, the island has closed 440 schools approximately, in large part due to declining enrollment. Um, That is... Uh, I believe more schools, uh, that is about two-thirds, I think, the number of schools in Chicago. Again, it gives you some perspective uh, about the issues in Puerto Rico that are systemic and long-term. On a more personal level, uh, in preparation for one reporting trip uh, for Puerto Rico, I tried to call a number of schools on the main line, just as you would call any traditional public school on the U.S. mainland. Not once did someone answer. Now, that may be for a variety of reasons, uh, but not once did someone pick up the phone at a school. Uh, I want to talk very briefly about the first charter school in Puerto Rico, which opened a few months ago. It's called Vimenti. It means uh, lifelong learning. A few points about it. Um, it is using a curriculum based on a curriculum from a private school in uh, Puerto Rico, St. John, something for a school choice Uh, proponents to consider, perhaps. Uh, It focuses on health screenings for its students. In fact, we learned that when the children showed up to attend, more than half of them needed glasses and did not previously have them. So that's a very fine granular level detail, but something that's important for students who are trying to look at a whiteboard or a blackboard, so ultimately very important. Teachers are paid Roughly $40,000 at this school, which is about one and a half times um, the uh, average uh, public school salary for a teacher in Puerto Rico. Um, and there is also an element for parents who get job training through the school. They learn the basics of working in the hospitality industry. Now, this is not just gravy because uh, the average annual salary for a person living in the Area served by the charter school is five thousand dollars. That is not a number we associate typically with uh, economics on the U.S. mainland. So I'll leave it there. Um, I look forward to your questions. Although I warn everyone else, I might have a few myself.
1: <laughs> All right. Hi everyone. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, and especially for having the perspective of the department representing this conversation. Uh, so as Jude mentioned, I am originally from Puerto Rico, although I haven't lived there since I was four years old, um, up until about six months ago when I moved for the opportunity to be part of this transformation of the island schools. Um, I quite honestly was living here and not considering moving back to Puerto Rico, but I got introduced to Secretary Kelleher. And pretty quickly, I, I mean, I think all of us can agree that uh, she is uh, an, an impressive uh, magnet. For partners and talent on the island, uh, I recognized quickly that this was a a once in a generation opportunity to have the political will of Governor DeSantis, the leadership of Secretary Kelleher, and uh, a increased urgency on the island to to really transform schools. And so I have really been um, uh, quite privileged to be a part of it. So I'll I'll just say a couple more points about context the overarching goals of the transformation and then more specifically some more notes on where the the school choice programs are. Um so in terms of context we've already talked a lot about the the challenges with low academic achievement and yes it is 4th and 8th grade NAEP where uh it was 0% proficiency Glad in, in I got it the right. the last administration. Uh so I, I won't say too much more on that. I will say it is a huge system, and one that's not just huge but also politicized and highly bureaucratic. Uh, under the most recent law before the Education Form Law 85 was passed in 2018, um, legally all principals on the island reported directly into the Secretary of Education. So I just give that detail as an idea for how the structure was – the system was not built for effective decision-making, for uh strategic decision-making, or – True accountability um, up and down the system, and so that's been a big focus of, of the efforts underway. And then, of course, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the fiscal crisis on the island that's been going on for over a decade. That has certainly put a lot of pressure on the school system. Uh, for example, in this last year, the state education budget was cut by uh, about three hundred billion. Um, in the middle of, you know, this effort to, to reinvest in our schools and to transform the system. And so that just puts additional pressures and challenges on accomplishing the work we want to do. So in terms of the overarching strategy, there, there are four goals that really uh, lay out the vision for what we're trying to do. First and foremost is improving uh, student academic achievement. And so we're making a lot of investments to really improve the the quality and breadth of the academic offerings that we have for students, including a focus on English and bilingual education on the island, since we know that that is really critical for preparing our students to be successful, not just on the island, but in a, a global context. The second is attending to the needs of the whole child. Uh, social and emotional learning is always critical, but especially so given the trauma that students have been facing, not just students, but actually, but, but the teachers um, and educators in our schools as well since the hurricane and so we've been making a lot of investments in uh, increasing services at the school level that includes hiring 435 nurses uh, we'll have school nurses for the first time in buildings this year um, as well as uh, a staffing model that includes psychologists social workers counselors um, in each and every school we're also focusing really hard on professionalizing teaching and learning. Um, there are a lot of elements here around how we're really trying to reinvest in the development of our teachers and leaders. But one one initiative that I think we've been really proud of is um redefining how we do professional development for teachers um, so that it is actually consistent and uh island wide and of high quality all of which is a shift from from the way it's been done before. And this summer we uh, implemented that with 28,000 teachers all across the island in the first dedicated back-to-school professional development week just before we started. And then finally, right-sizing the system. Um, there's been a lot of news about the school closures. Uh, we closed about 250 schools and are now uh, operating 856 schools this school year. Um, certainly that that created uh, a lot of challenges in terms of um, the the impact on community level, but it really was a necessity in order to ensure that we were able to provide each and every school with the resources needed to provide a high quality education for students. Um, and then along the lines of right-sizing, restructuring the system, we have been uh, working on standing up seven uh, regional offices across the island. Um, while we are still a unitary system with one agency being both the state education agency and the local education agency, these regions are meant to um, operate more as uh, local districts with more ownership and autonomy um, happening closer to the level of schools so that they can really be responsive to the needs of their communities. And so that's been an ongoing um, long-term change management process. Uh, and I see you are seeing uh, this is actually Vimenti School um, in the image that, that you see on the screen. So these are just a couple images from from our schools. Um, that's Secretary Kelleher uh, handing out textbooks on the first day of school this year. One of the one of the needs we have had that's just fairly basic is just materials for our schools. And so we have delivered over a million textbooks in the first large-scale purchase of textbooks in about a decade. Uh, So a little bit more about where we are uh, with school choice. As we've mentioned, we opened the first charter school um, in August. So Law 85, which was passed in March 2018, um, establishes the Department of Education as the sole charter authorizer on the island. And we moved quickly uh, to to have the first application process over the summer. We received 43 applications to open schools. So as as you can see, while it has been controversial to get to this point in terms of the public conversation, there is a lot of interest from nonprofits, from municipalities, from local universities um, to be part of an effort to provide more school choice for students. While we only um, approved one to open this year, um, since it was a school that was uh, ready with high-quality academic and operational plans, um, we have a much longer pipeline um, for future years. So we approved two other schools for what we're calling a planning year, um, where they will provide additional support this year um, so that they can be ready to open next fall, Um, and then we also have offered for those applicants who made it through the whole process, um, and it's 15 other applicants, uh, to receive uh, heavy technical assistance over this year and be invited to to resubmit, assuming they meet the conditions for getting their applications to a high enough quality level, uh, to open in future years. Because we want to find a really um, important balance between ensuring that schools um, are ready to open with quality, but also recognizing that this is such a new initiative here. We need to be able to provide some of the tools and resources that, that entities will need in order to, to be successful. And then finally with the voucher program, um, there is less to say here because as we've talked, that is really launching, um, next fall. So under the law, uh, in the next year, um, up to 3% of students um, can receive vouchers that will uh, help to subsidize the costs of a private school education. Um, really, a lot of the questions for how that is going to operate exactly will be defined as we work through um, the regulations uh, following the broad strokes sort of set in the law, um, which will include, you know, how much are we going to be giving based on the per-pupil funding um, as calculated by the department, who can participate in terms of um, the, the private schools, uh, and what that that process will look like, and so um, we're excited to be working through some of those details, and are um, thankful that we have partners um, across who, on both school choice programs, can provide expertise and models for us to draw from. While um, very importantly, making sure that we're adapting it to the very unique context in Puerto Rico.
0: Well, good afternoon. My name is Daryl Allison. Uh, two quick points. I <clears> know <throat> no time is um, getting away from us. Um, um, point number one, just. A phrase, indomitable spirit. You know, indomitable spirit. What I've been able to see, uh, there in, in, uh, Puerto Rico, couldn't come up with a, with a, with a phrase there. You know, I, um my office is here in D.C., but I actually reside in North Carolina. Uh, we know a little bit about hurricanes, i.e. Hurricane Florence and, and, uh, you know, still dealing with that impact over a $13 billion hit. Imagine, and again, um, there's two hurricanes, as the secretary said, and really, it just hit a year in Puerto Rico. Irma, and then a month later, Maria. So, so, so think about that. And again, we're talking about, uh, just right at a year, a little over a year, uh, this time. Um, no doubt communities, uh, quite a few still in shambles. Uh, we're talking thousands, uh, with an S, deaths. Devastation and, 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 billions of dollars. And obviously, uh, fiscal impact was already a challenge. And obviously with this, um, uh, calamity, is it's, it's been very, very challenging. But, but I say indomitable spirit. Um, 2018, early 2018, you had a governor, Governor Ocelio, in a legislature, who forged ahead, uh, with some transformative policy. Um and, uh sure enough, um uh, opponents, uh, unions and, and uh et cetera, it just as live in the mainland, it just is it just as vibrant and live in, in Puerto Rico as well. Uh when that legislation passed, it obviously um uh, filed lawsuit and, and stalled uh momentum um movement activity stalled because of the injunction. Ultimately the Supreme Court uh held the programs constitutional, but this is where it gets to, uh, uh, the fierce leader, Secretary Kelleher. They had a matter of months, a matter of months, uh, to get a charter, uh, approved and get going. Uh, and, uh, we'll be honest with you, there, there are a number of of, of, of groups, uh, who had commentary, right, to say, hey, maybe we just, just give it a, give it a year, you know, just, just, just all here, you know, a bit here. But, but nevertheless, fierce leadership forced ahead. Now, though, uh, one app, you know, one charter school came out of that. If I'm not mistaken, Vanessa, I think there are close to 50 or more applications, uh, for public charter school. Uh, now again, a lot of people, you know, um, make, make a lot of that. But I think it also tells you about the people, um, the individuals and other leaders there, uh, who see the need for change, uh, if you will. Uh, not only that, <laughs> uh, again paint painting a picture of the indomitable spirit. When I talk about fierce, I'm talking about campaigns, uh first day of schools or so there's teacher walkout, um, and and being able, uh first as governor, pass policy, withstand the legal challenge, and then Secretary uh, uh Kelleher, who uh just shortened months because of the uh the injunction of the program still forged ahead in light of um, the noise, if you will. Uh, I, I can't tell you, uh, how I, who've been in this space for, for quite some time, uh, have, have been impacted, uh, for the good. Cur- courage is not necessarily absence of fear. It's looking dead in, in the face of fear and yet moving forward. Um, I, I, I've been, I've been blown away. Uh, point number two, and I guess this is more so for us, us air reformers, if you will. And, uh, obviously there, there, there are a lot of needs there for, Puerto Rico. Uh, thank you, Assistant Secretary, Department of Education, for the resources there. Uh, and I know there, there are more to come. Uh, knock on wood. Uh, the philanthropy arm, uh, no doubt about it, a uh, number of organizations are looking to pitch in, if you will. But for ed reformers, um, I will say the theme is not necessarily uh, what can we do um, to help Puerto Rico. Uh, I actually think we, at reformers, I actually think we need Puerto Rico. You know when you look at the work that we do, I, and again, I am very grateful for 25 plus states that have you know private choice and 50 plus programs, if you will, that's thriving in those states, if you will. Uh, There's been there have been movement here, but I'll say to you, I think all too often this this this, this effort kind of gets caught up in the uh, the legislature, kind of gets caught up in the politics and the policy, and and we're a little bit too far removed from on the ground. You know what what this what this policy really mean in the lives of people, uh, again, um, because of these challenges, national disasters, e- e- economics, if you will, and for me to personally see and I think I'm a pretty courageous guy, but for me to see truly uh, courageous leaders, they're on the ground, there in Puerto Rico, um, um, forging ahead, knowing that the right thing is the right thing uh, in season and out of season. We're going to continue to do the right thing. I've been blown away, not only from elected officials and and, and Secretary Kelleher and those administrations, but the other thing uh, I've been impressed with is is, it is the Vanessa Gonzalez's. It is those individuals that were born there, raised there, came to the mainland, get educated. What you're also seeing where there has been exodus from Puerto Rico, you're actually seeing strong leaders like Vanessa and others that are going to Puerto Rico uh, to take up the fight and to to do the right thing. And so... um, those are just my two points. That's what I've experienced. Uh, I'm I'm so excited uh, about the opportunity, understanding the challenges. Uh, but for those of us, uh, let's be mindful uh, that we want to work with Puerto Rico uh, and necessarily do it for Puerto Rico. Thank
6: you. Hi, I'm Robert Enlow, and uh, I'm president and CEO of EdChoice. I want to uh, thank you all for having me at Heritage and. Secretary, it's very good to see you again. It's 1999. Those those uh, tires doing an A plus. I remember that. So thanks for all that work. And, and Vanessa, uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing, and the secretary. It's amazing and the leadership you're taking. Um, uh, I know I'm the last speaker, so I'm I'm in the way of getting out of here. I'm going to make one point. You know, the joke is one point with 14 subpoints. No, <laughs> um, look, I have I have two things that we got to remember here. Um, it didn't happen overnight right you got to remember what happened in Puerto Rico from 1996 to 06 with the economic crisis it uh, with the section nine one 186 removal of the tax credit it caused a huge financial crisis in the in the in the territory and we got a situation here where it was the biggest uh, financial crisis in US history that it happens and then you had on top of that all of the the education in fact the number i saw was 100,000 children had gone gone in the last 5 years so the exodus was happening beforehand, and it's definitely happening now. And so I think this is a real something for us to remember. It didn't happen overnight, which means then we have to be thoughtful uh, and balanced because it's not going to be fixed overnight. And what the secretary is doing, uh, it was not just about choice, right? The reorganizing the entire structure of the Department of Education, putting in a f- funding formula. For the first time ever, right? I mean, the first time ever, right? even that's right. Amazing, right? Uh, first teacher raise in a decade, even though they have very low teacher, right? Uh, and then the charter programs, and not even not even that. All the buildings are now under one cap, one pro, one capital program. So there's been this incredible restructuring that's been going on with the leadership of Secretary Kelleher and the governor and the legislature. And so, you know, last October there were no schools. Most, almost all schools were closed this october 856 open that's the incredible leadership but it's not going to be fixed overnight and so i think we have to be careful about being balanced when we approach the the idea of helping and being participating in puerto rico by balance i mean we have to be thoughtful about the fierce urgency of now right there are people who are who are in dire need right now and and the problem is that children need to get in where they fit in and they need to create systems around that uh, two, though, I'm always reminded of my, of my Chinese proverb that is sort of, uh, a, a guides Ed Choice, which is go to the people, live among the people, start with what they know, build on what they have. And when the leaders, uh, leaders leave, the people say they've done it themselves. It's really important that those of us who are helping help with the right framework in mind, uh, that we come to help, uh, what's already going on, not trying to lead it in a way. Uh, and this is one of the things, because what happens in these scenarios is, ed reformers come coming in and we just got to be thoughtful about what that means uh and we need to take the direction of that which is why design matters so as you look at the uh going forward and this is my last point when you look at what uh, the cho- choice program will look like the voucher program in particular as the rules are written design matters right we need to focus on what parents and communities want and and if you look at the studies that were just done by Lindsay here at, at Heritage that we published in in ones in Indiana parents want a safe Moral quality environment. They don't care about school type. They care about they care about those three things, right? So let's as we look at reforms of the voucher program, let's make sure we're opening it up to to those kind of schools that can provide that environment. Uh, looking at Justice Justice Breyer, I don't know if you know this, wrote a book on regulation where he warned about the the problems of overregulation. And so as we look at rules, if we're going to stymie the growth of, of of the private sector in, in Puerto Rico, we have got to be thoughtful about that. And we have to be aware of what that will mean to a program. So as, just the last point I want to make is we have to be careful about how we approach this, but we also have to be careful about design as it goes forward. And, and, uh, and then the actual last point, sorry, um, politics is a big deal. And so I don't know if you know this, but the Save Our Schools uh, a group had their national meeting in my home city of Indianapolis last week. Happened to have someone around to look at it and go in there. And the almost half of the work, uh, the sessions were on Puerto Rico. There is clear desire to stop everything that's going on there, which is why we need to have the same resolve to help Secretary Kelleher and the the governor going forward, clear desire to help them. Those are my comments. Thank you.
4: I think we have time for one or two questions. So, uh, yes, please. I know for charter schools in general, two of the biggest challenges they face is facilities and transportation. I imagine that's um, also true in Puerto Rican. I was was wondering if you could uh, shed light on perhaps some of the uh, ideas
1: they have moving forward around that. I can answer that. So this this is one of the places where context is actually quite different than um, in many other places. So facilities – not, not the same challenge as, say, Washington DC, where I was working previously. Because we have closed so many schools in the last few years, there are actually a lot of unused buildings. It doesn't mean they're all, you know, ready to, to be up and running tomorrow. Um, but we do have a lot of excess school buildings, which are available, um, to potential charter applicants. And so as part of the application process, what they did was actually identify, um, where they wanted to be located, not just in terms of cities, but they could say, "Okay, this is a facility that I'm interested in." Um, interestingly, we at the department don't actually have the jurisdiction over those decisions, but it's part of the process where um, they can they can have access to to public facilities, or they can have private facilities if if they think that's going to be um, better for for their academic program. On the transportation front, um, similarly, kind of unique context, at least in this first year, we are providing transportation to uh, – w- well, at the Menti School, um, they're not making use of that. But we have offered to provide transportation services to, um, to our schools that open um, if they wish to make use of that as we would run it for public school students.
6: Can I quickly add on the transportation? In every context is different, so I don't know the context of Puerto Rico. I will just tell you that the study was just done in Florida, same one, about parents using the CHOICE program. So, we did a study in Indiana, a study in Florida about who's using the program. 80% of the families who are earning, uh, coming from families for earning less than $25,000 have access to a daily, daily, uh, transportation. So while it's a huge challenge, it's a huge issue, even in Florida and places like that, it's interesting, and I, I don't have any clue about it, the, the unique context of Puerto Rico, but we've got to be thoughtful about the presumptions we make related to transportation.
1: Just a quick follow-up question about the facilities. Are those buildings being provided free of charge to the schools in the same way that they're given to traditional public schools, or is there some sort of lease that goes with that? Uh That's a good question. So, So it is free of charge but of course there is uh, an agreement signed us as, as part of this and that spells out the terms of use. Yeah, sorry. One, 1 so virtually free. Thank you.
0: Um could any of you speak to Puerto Rico's participation in the uh, federal weighted student funding pilot? I'm interested to learn about what role that's playing in their school choice initiatives and the reforms like more generally.
1: Uh, so I will say I won't be able to talk in, in too much detail there because that's not um, something I've been as directly involved in, but we are participating in that and have used the opportunity to um, use that to really define what it is that we will be paying to charter schools as part of the um, the per-pupil payments.
6: It also pegs the voucher number, right? So 70% is the voucher number. So so we'll see. I mean, so when they get the, the, the formula, I've seen is like 4500 is the max. So far, we'll see.
0: Vanessa, we, uh, just follow up on that, in terms of population, student population, am I incorrect? About 90% of the kids are poverty, poverty level?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have uh, this year about 307,000 uh, students, and, and yes, it's about 90% um, who – who would qualify for free or reduced lunch? So it is a, a high need population um, in the public schools.
4: All right, well, I think we'll wrap up there. Thank you for coming, and if you're interested in uh, hearing more about Puerto Rico and school choice, please look at Heritage's recent publications. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Okay. I'll Wait for your think, questions, you man. Know. <laughs> <laughs>